Imagine the audacity of setting yourself up as the world's judge of what is and isn't a proportionate military attack, what is and isn't a war crime, and then being exposed as having no actual standards, guidelines, or processes whatsoever. You're basically just making it up as you go along. That's my take on Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth. In the last few days, I read many essays on the theory of proportionality in war. And of course, it's an extremely complex issue. None of the writers gives us any clear rules. In a certain way, they all throw up their hands. But like they say in Oppenheimer, a three-hour movie basically about proportionality, theory will only get you so far. If you're going to judge people and accuse them of war crimes and salivate to try them in the world court, don't you have to explain some standards beyond your own gut? War crimes can't be just like porn, which Justice Potter Stewart famously said, I know it when I see it. Now, if we're going to be fair to Stewart's I know it when I see it argument, it was never as stupid as some people claimed. Some things do indeed defy easy codification. Cold logic can lead us astray from our humanity as surely as our emotions can. And sometimes you may not really feel you know something until you see it with your own eyes. Creating a kind of exchange rate between innocent lives and military target value seems almost impossible. And anyone who does it will be called heartless, especially, and it would be inevitable, if they appear to sign off on the deaths of innocents. Nevertheless, wouldn't any soulful judge who wants to charge someone with war crimes feel compelled to give us some historical examples of battlefield measures he considered to be proportionate? Give us some examples of close calls tough cases, explain scenarios that various respected thinkers and philosophers have grappled with, and tell us which camp he's in. Give us some perspective, Mr. Roth, so we know what guides you. And let's also admit something difficult here. Israel may have to acknowledge limits, even at the cost of ending this war and allowing Hamas to declare victory. Imagine, for instance, that Hamas had somehow booby-trapped all of the tunnels such that one Unlucky bomb from Israel would explode all of Gaza, killing almost every civilian man, woman, and child. More than a million deaths. The mother of all suicide bombs. Does anyone think that Israel would have any moral choice but to abandon its campaign? So the game theory of all this is chilling. It creates terrible incentives for atrocities. And it, and it creates the risk of further descent into barbarism. And yet the world looks the other way, reacting with insufficient outrage at what's right before its eyes. The rules of war, obviously, were meant for good. They were designed to protect morality and protect justice. But the doctrine of proportionality, when combined with this toleration of human shields, is allowing the rules of war to morph into an ultimate weapon of refuge for evil. It's the perfect bastardization of the law, allowing the victimizer to tie the hands of the victim. Availing itself of the law, the victimizer lives to repeat its crimes over and over, the very opposite of the law's intention. In fact, the lesson of this war may well end up being that Hamas can commit atrocities and then run to the other side of the line and tauntingly thumb its nose at Israel, protected shoulder to shoulder by innocent women and children. And make no mistake, it's only because Hamas wants its civilians to die that its civilians die, at least in such unbearable numbers. What other conclusion can you draw from an organization that spends billions of dollars on digging tunnels, but not a single dime for bomb shelters? 
maybe except for its leaders. And Hamas leadership has admitted as much as this in interviews. Many lives could be saved, perhaps, if the world would show unanimous outrage at this tactic and brought pressure to bear. But instead, Human Rights Watch, ostensibly the world's conscience on such matters, focuses almost exclusively on other things and hands down sanctimonious, and by the way, inaccurate, as I will demonstrate, sanctimonious reports that then become the fertilizer that people like Norman Finkelstein use to grow their influential arguments against Israel. And after all, who wouldn't trust an organization called Human Rights Watch? And while I'm on the subject of Norman Finkelstein, I owe him kind of an apology that I'm going to cut in here. A few weeks ago, Professor Alan Dershowitz was on our show and he had this exchange with my co-host Dan Natterman. We, we had your uh, old rival, Mr. Norman Finkelstein, on a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he may, I, I assume he's not uh, one of your favorite people. But in any case, um, he made the point that as soon as Hamas was elected, Israel then imposed a blockade. And his, uh, he made the point that Israel didn't give Hamas a chance before imposing the blockade. An absolute lie. What happened was this. Hamas took over a coup. Then 6,000 rockets were sent from Gaza into Israel. I know because my cousin is the chief rabbi of Steyrot. And it was only after the rockets were sent, after Hamas attacked Israel, that Israel said, we have to control the borders. They still didn't send a single soldier in. They just said, we're not letting rockets go in. We're not letting uh, other items that can be used to make rockets to go in. And so they gave Hamas a complete chance. And by the way, they still had, they could have turned it into a Singapore paradise even before Hamas took over. But Norman Finkelstein has been a longtime supporter of Hamas. He loves Hamas. He said on October 8th that it warms every part of his heart to see these murders, rapes, and robberies uh, and, and, and kidnappings. He's a despicable anti-Semite. And, uh, you know, he loves to say his mother was a Holocaust survivor. His mother was a capo. His mother admitted that she uh, did terrible things to survive. So I wouldn't be citing his mother as a Holocaust survivor any more than I would cite George Soros as a Holocaust survivor. Norman Finkelstein isn't Jewish. He's Jewish on his parents' side, but he's an anti-Semite. He hates Jew Jews and Judaism, but he says, oh, I'm Jewish. And because I say, uh, Hamas is wonderful. It must be wonderful. No, no, that's not the way you judge uh, people's ideas. Uh, no, I, I, I think that Norman Finkelstein is beneath contempt. But the idea that these rapes, murders, and, and kidnappings warmed, you, you should get that quote. It was the day after uh, October 7th. Warms every part of his heart to see what these people were doing to Israeli babies. That's Norman Finkelstein. Yep. All right, Perry Allen, then we're I have, I have a question. How so I remember very well what I was thinking when this happened. I didn't like it at all, but I chose to let it go by because I had no, no knowledge of the accusation. If I challenged it or asked for evidence, I was afraid I'd gotten sucked into something worse. I didn't want to give it any oxygen, so I moved on. But in retrospect, I should have said something to dissociate my, disassociate myself from that kind of ugly charge. I got a very, very upset email from Professor Finkelstein about the segment, and I looked into it, 
and I want to report that I think Dershowitz's charge was grossly unfair. So I'm going to read at length here from Finkelstein's essay on the matter, which to my knowledge is Dershowitz's only source. Except for the allusions to the relentless pangs of hunger, my mother never spoke about her personal torments during the war, which was just as well since I couldn't have borne them. Like Primo Levi, she often said that being too delicate and refined, the best didn't survive. Was this an indirect admission of guilt? Much later in life, I finally summoned the nerve to ask whether she had done anything of which she was ashamed. Calmly replying no, she recalled having refused the privileged position of blockhead in the camp. She especially resented the dirty question, how did you survive, with the insinuation that, to emerge alive from the camps, survivors must have morally compromised themselves. Given how ferociously she cursed the Jewish councils, ghetto police, and capos, I assume my mother answered me truthfully, although acknowledging that Jews initially joined the councils from mixed motives, she said that only scum, reaping the rewards of doing the devil's work, still cooperated after it became clear that they were merely cogs in the Nazi killing machine. When queried why she hadn't settled in Israel after the war, my mother used to reply, only half in jest, that I had enough of Jewish leaders. The Jewish ghetto police always had the option, she said, of throwing off their uniforms and joining the rest of us. A point that Yitzchak Zuckerman, a leader of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, made in his memoir. It was always gratifying to find my mother's seemingly erratic or harsh judgments seconded in the reliable testimonial literature. Still shaking her head in disbelief, she would often recall how, after Jews in the ghetto used the most primitive implements or even bare hands to dig bunkers deep in the earth and conceal themselves, the Jewish police would reveal these hideouts to the Germans, sending their flesh and blood to the crematoria in order to save their own skins. One of the first acts of the ghetto resistance was to kill an officer of the Jewish police. On a sign posted next to his corpse, my mother would recall with vengeful glee, read the epitaph, those who live like a dog die like a dog. Still, if she didn't cross fundamental moral boundaries, I glimpsed from her manner of pushing and shoving in order to get to the head of a queue, which mortified me, how my mother must have fought Hobbes's war of all against all many a time in the camps. Really, how else would she have survived? I think this has to be acknowledged as beautiful and introspective prose. So I'm not going to try to defend uh, Dershowitz's use of ellipses to dismember and reassemble some kind of Frankenstein version to claim that Norman Finkelstein's mother was a capo. Um, I don't think it holds up, and I think um, we all have to acknowledge there's a certain uh, cruelty of talking about a person's mother. Okay, back to Roth. This interview really shook me up, so I want to share my initial kind of overblown reaction from an email that I, I didn't send to a friend. I interviewed Ken Roth last night and it's changed my outlook on life. I'm becoming somewhat radicalized. It's undeniable that there's an informal cabal out there of intellectual thugs, none of them who can answer even basic questions about their positions, and rarely do they have to. 
They are powerful, brazen, and cruel. Human Rights Watch is no different than the groups that Jesse Single has had to face off against on trans issues. No different than those robotic university presidents we listen to. No different than the people at TED who fought to censor Coleman Hughes' TED Talk. The people who called Lab Leak racist. The people who chased McNeil and Bennett out of the Times and more. They are all related and they all support the same issues. It's like some kind of authoritarian will to power. Again, informal and simultaneous. The emperors have no clothes. We must fight them and expose them. They have done tremendous damage. So, okay, I got carried away. But let me be clear. I couldn't care less about the points of view of these people. Anyone who makes that the takeaway from what I'm saying is completely misunderstanding me. It's the substitution of power and ostracization for debate that scares me. I think we've had enough of it. So, here is 35 minutes of the scheduled one-hour interview I did with the chairman of Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth, before he hung up on me. Hit it. There he is. Hello. 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 Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Good evening and welcome to Live from the Table. Uh, my name is Noam Dorman. I'm the host of this podcast. Dan Natterman is off this week, but of course, as always, the lovely Periel Ashenbrand, who wrote a scathing letter to somebody and said very nice things about me this week, so I <laughs> appreciate it, is here, and she's going to introduce our guest. Go ahead. Kenneth Roth is the Charles and Marie Robertson Visiting Professor at the Princeton School for Public and International Affairs. He served for nearly three decades as the executive director of Human Rights Watch and was a federal prosecutor in New York and for the Iran-Contra investigation in Washington. He has written hundreds of articles on a wide range of human rights issues and has a book forthcoming with Knopf. Welcome, sir. Hi, good to be here. Uh, by the way, I really appreciate you doing this show. I mean, you, you have some idea that I'm, uh, you know, probably disagree with you on a lot of stuff, right? You knew that before you came in. It's not the first time. This yeah, so I, I always appreciate anybody who's uh, ready to come in like that. So um, uh, before before we get into the Human Rights Watch stuff and your current stuff on Israel, uh, I, I looked around. I couldn't really find any interview you did about this, and I'm interested. I, you don't have to talk about this, but I am interested. You're quite a critic of Israel. You're Jewish. What is your, um, what's your emotional attachment to Israel and, and, as, a, as a Jewish person? Like, for instance, like Peter Beinart, who's also very critical of Israel, talks very much about what he does is because, uh, because he wants Israel to be as good as it can be because um, he takes it so seriously because he's Jewish and things like that. Where, where are you coming from? on your connection to Israel? Well, you know, I mean, I, I grew up with, I think, all the, the usual attachments to Israel. You know, I, I was bar mitzvahed. I was in Hebrew school three days a week. You know, I remember vividly the 67 war and my Israeli teacher, you know, very upset. Um, my, my, you know, I, I visited for the first time right after law school with a couple of friends and spent a month there. So, you know, I, I think I had a kind of very normal attitude toward Israel. Um, as I began to do human rights work, it changed because I, you know, started treating Israel the way I do the hundred other governments that Human Rights Watch works on, and I couldn't help but be disturbed by the conduct of that government. So, did that turn you off to being Jewish as well, or just Israel? 
No, it, it didn't change my view. I'm, I still consider myself Jewish, but it changed my attitude toward the Israeli government. Okay, so um, you talk a lot uh, in this conflict. I think you've tweeted like 45 times since the conflict started about the issue of proportionality. Um, I have a video here of a pretty succinct take you did. You have that video, uh, Max? The other rule that probably is implicated more regularly is the rule against um, firing even at a recognized military target if the um, civilian consequences will be disproportionate. And you know, I think the, um, the perfect example of that is, is the Jabalia refugee camp, where you know, let's even accept Israel's premise, that their accusation, that Hamas had a command center of some sort underneath the refugee camp. Um, that does not justify using you know, multiple 2,000 pound bombs in the middle of a heavily populated area, which was quite obviously, quite predictably, going to have huge civilian consequences, you know, resulting in massive civilian death and injury. And yeah. other illustrations of this, you know, we've seen Israel doing this time what they've done in prior wars, which is um, you know, giving warning with respect to the residents of a particular high-rise apartment building, um, and then bombing the building. And you know, the argument is, oh, there was a Hamas presence somewhere in the building. And again, let's assume that that's true. You know, what kind of Hamas presence would justify suddenly rendering 100 families homeless? So this is my question uh, about that. What attack, now you're an expert on all the Israeli actions over the last you know, 20 years. What was an example of one that you did think was proportionate? I'm sorry, one thing that did what? What was an example of an Israeli attack on, a, on Hamas, a building, a tunnel, whatever it is, that was proportionate in your view? Like you say, it's disproportionate. What, what does proportionate look like? Well, proportional looks like you you hit a military target and there are either no civilian casualties or, or modest civilian casualties compared to the importance of the military target. You know, that's what the rule says. And, and I should say that, you know, this is not a rule that I made up. It's not a rule that Human Rights Watch made up. It's not a rule that, you know, human rights activists or peaceniks made up. It's a rule that the militaries of the world established for themselves, including the Israeli government. And the Israeli government says that it abides by this rule. So, so this is not something I'm imposing on them. This is something they they say that they abide by. They just don't. Okay. So in the Jabalia refugee camp, according to the BBC and Al Jazeera here, I've talked, uh, they had they said a fighter jets carried out a broad attack that had struck Hamas militants, including a commander um, who Israeli officials had accused of uh, planning the October seventh massacres. A quote: a wide scale strike on terrorists and terror infrastructure belonging to the Central Jabalia Battalion, which had taken control over civilian buildings in Gaza City. The IDF claims multiple dozens of Hamas fighters had been killed in a vast underground tunnel complex. They had struck in between buildings targeting the tunnel complex. The collapse of the tunnels, the IDF said, had caused surrounding buildings to collapse. This, he said, cannot be avoided. So this is, if you take them at their word, this is quite an important target as a leadership, vast tunnels, all that. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that it sounds like what you're saying is perilously close to saying that Israel Israel can't fight Hamas so long as they've put all their important assets in a place which can't be reached without killing civilians. Is that, is that your view? 
No, that's ridiculous. Don't don't you know? Don't do caricatures, please. We should have a serious conversation here, but not caricatures. Uh, uh, well, now, let me just let me let, let me just address your question. Okay, yeah. so I mean, first of all, you got to be careful about taking the Israeli Defense Forces at their word, you know, because this is the same group that said there's this huge command center under Al Shifa. Uh, let's just say it for the sake of argument, because I don't want to get I, I don't want to get. I'm trying to understand you know, the you know, portion Because the whole point is you can't, because they say these things. And then when you look at what happens, they have, you know, a handful of rifles and a tunnel or two under the hospital. So there was a Hamas presence there. Of but you know, was it justified in shutting down the major hospital okay, in Gaza, northern Gaza in the midst of a war? Obviously not. Well, let's go to the Jabalia refugee camp. Absolutely. You can take it for the sake of argument. Say, if they're telling the truth, it would be proportionate. If they're not telling the truth, it would not be proportionate if we can't take it for the sake of argument. There's no way to talk about it because you let's can talk it. about let's talk about Jabalia refugee camp. Okay, the the U.S. military, which is you know as friendly as you can get to the Israeli government, they would never drop a two thousand pound bomb on a heavily populated area like the Jabalia refugee camp because it would be disproportionate. That's their position. They would never drop a 1,000-pound bomb on the Jabalia refugee camp. They are extremely reluctant to drop a 500-pound bomb on a populated area like that. But Israel dropped two 2,000-pound bombs on this heavily populated area. Um, that is disproportionate. It predictably had huge consequences for civilians. Now, you know, we can, um, you know, even if you take them at their word, they are using an approach that even their best defender. The U.S. government would never do. So you should think about that. Okay, but the question I, I do think about it, and I don't know enough about military bomb tonnage. You got to know about that if you're going to make these decisions. Okay, uh, since the podcast, I did a little research into um, what Roth said so I could understand it. Uh, there's an article here from Business Insider. Uh, I guess reporting on an article by the New York Times, Brian Kastner, an Amnesty International weapons investigator and former U.S. Air Force Explosive Ordnance Disposal Officer, told the Times that the bombs used in Gaza are larger than bombs used by the U.S. to fight ISIS in Mosul in Iraq and Raqqa in Syria. Kastner told the outlet that the explosives are more consistent with targeting underground structures such as tunnels. Quote, they are using extremely large weapons in extremely densely populated areas, Kastner said. It is the worst possible combination of factors. Israel has noted that Gaza is a unique battlefield, small and dense, with civilians living next to and on top of Hamas-run tunnel networks, the Times reported. And of course, in other conflicts, it has to be said that the army didn't have to deal with the primary strategic and necessary objective of destroying 300 miles of reinforced tunnels and all the military assets contained therein. Uh, these tunnels are not, can't be destroyed with machine guns. They can only be destroyed with high pound explosives. Further, um, the issue of embedding in civilian areas, as the New York Times has said about, uh, well, I'll quote it, but in the bloody arithmetic of Hamas's leaders, the carnage is not the regrettable outcome of a big miscalculation. Quite the opposite, they say. It is the necessary cost of a great accomplishment, the shattering of the status quo and the opening of a new, more volatile chapter in their fight against Israel. In other words, civilian deaths are Hamas's objective. So you can imagine how hard it might be to avoid civilian deaths 
in a war when your enemy actually wants them, which is all to say that these conflicts are probably not fairly compared. However, a Google search of the Human Rights Watch website does reveal that 2,000-pound bombs are not out of the question even for the U.S. military, nor are other liberties taken with civilian lives. So there is a report on the Human Rights Watch website called Needless Deaths in the Gulf War, Civilian Casualties During the Air Campaign and Violations of the Law of, of War. And I'll just read the uh, headings from the table of contents here. 100 killed in daytime attack on the bridge in southern city. Scores of civilians killed in flawed attack on bridge in western Iraq. Denial, denials and then admissions by the Allies about the attack. Scores of civilians killed in daytime attack on bridge near Market. Scores of workers killed in market area of southeastern city. Morning bombing near crowded market areas in Basra. Daytime bombings of bridges in Basra. Scores of civilians waiting for cooking gas killed and injured during daytime attack. Civilian factory in southern city bombed in afternoon. And a, a few excerpts. Yemeni students interviewed said that this market was bombed about four times before they left Basra. One student remarked that some of the craters were as large as swimming pools. The crater size suggested that the ordnance drop may have been a 2,000-pound guided bomb. Uh, in another report, the Allies have yet to explain the factors leading to the civilian casualties and the damage that did occur in Baghdad, some of which are detailed below. And um, there's, there's some Pentagon denials, and then it says, second, the stealth used ordnance that was not battle-tested. General McPeak stated in his briefing that the stealth were equipped with case-hardened 2,000-pound bombs that have never been used before. Um, there's some mention of Afghanistan. Nine civilians killed, five women, three children, and an elderly man was hit by 2,000-pound bombs dropped by U.S. aircraft. Al-Mansur, Baghdad, on April 7th, Lancer aircraft dropped four 2,000-pound bombs on a house in the Al-Mansur district of Baghdad, killed an estimated 18 civilians. And one more report. Without warning, an American F-15E attack jet streaked across the drone's high-definition field division and dropped a 500-pound bomb on the crowd, swallowing it in a shuddering blast. As the smoke cleared, a few people stumbled away in search of cover. Then a jet tracking them dropped one 2,000-pound bomb, then another, killing most of the survivors. So, of course, there may be good reasons for all these things. They may be proportionate. I don't know very much about war, if anything at all, except to note that um, these things go on in other conflicts, and the notion that America has not been accused of similar things, seems to be untrue. You gotta know about that if you're gonna make these decisions. Oh, yes, you gotta yeah, know. Yeah, right, but I'm asking you. I'm answering you. You would drop a 2,000 pound bomb, let alone two, on the double your refugee what, count. What would you drop, presuming that a commander and major assets were under and in the Jabalia refugee camp, or would you say Israel has no, that, that's now off limits? No, no, that, I mean, okay, there are lots of options beyond dropping huge bombs. You can go in there with personnel. You can do kind of a targeted effort. So you go after the Hamas commander. You go after their command center. You do it in a way that minimizes harms for civilians. That's what Biden is pushing 
the Israeli Defense Force to do right now. They're resisting. They're continuing to drop bombs despite now 20,000 so, 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 so you know, in other words, it, it, it's not just, you know, is it OK? Tell me, what do you need to know before you can drop a 2000 pound bomb in a heavily populated area? That's the wrong question. There are other ways to go about it. So what you're saying then is that basically all the bombing of Gaza is probably disproportionate in your you're, you're putting words in my mouth. again. I'm asking you. Just I'm don't not, do that. Don't well, then do give, that. Me, give me an example. Words, you can, there give are me lots example of examples. Of... Where, OK, if you let me answer, don't interrupt me and I'll answer. If you, you know, imagine, you know, if we're going to do these hypotheticals, imagine, you know, a Hamas command center sitting in the middle of a field. They can bomb it to smithereens. I don't care. They're but no that states. doesn't exist. Okay. That doesn't exist. They don't do that. You, 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 I mean, mean, you don't know that. You know, well, in others, they, they hire, they're all over the place. If you've there's an you've not a significant civilian presence, then bombing is okay. If there is a significant civilian presence, you've got to find ways to do it where you minimize the civilian harm. Now, they can use, obviously, there's a difference between using precision weapons and dumb weapons, too. That's another way to minimize harm. We now know that, you know, nearly half of the bombs that Israel's dropping are dumb bombs. You know, they're not precision guided. You know, that, again, adds to this kind of indiscriminate nature. So, so, so let me ask you again. Let me put civilian casualties. Let me ask you, are you aware in your whole history of this conflict, of any bombing that you thought was proportionate? I, I don't, I mean, I, there's, they've been dropping so many bombs. I mean, I don't, I can't tell you every single one that they've dropped. But was there I'm ever sure a time? There have been time? I'm sure that there have been times when they have bombed, when there was only military presence there. And I would have no problem with that because I'm not a fan of Hamas. Hamas is this awful military. I mean, but, but they so committed that, these awful war crimes on October 7th. It's a despicable force. They can be fought. I have no quarrel with Israel fighting Hamas. I My aim is to protect civilians. Okay, but, you, but you've acknowledged that Hamas uh, embeds itself with civilians. I've seen that in interviews. I wanted to address two defenses that the Israeli government typically puts forward. Um, one is that Hamas is um, using human shields to try to render certain military targets um, untouchable, unattackable, um, or the related one that Hamas is firing from or fighting from heavily populated areas, thereby endangering the civilian population. And again, I assume that that is true at times. But it, the important point to, to stress is that um, just because Hamas may be committing a war crime there does not, you know, as I said earlier, justify Israel committing a war crime in turn. Yeah, no, what, what I've said there, and in fact, why don't we go through the whole thing? Because in other words, um, you know, Israel, when, when you say, oh, you're killing all these civilians, they say human shields, human shields, human shields. That's their answer, you know. And so sometimes that happens. Other times Hamas is fighting from civilian populated areas, which is a war crime. Um, but a basic rule of humanitarian law is the war crime by one side does not justify war crimes by the other. And so you still, as the attacker, need to ensure that the attack is proportionate, that you're not causing disproportionate harm to civilians. And the mere fact that you can say Hamas is using civilians as shields is not the answer to the question. You still have to make an independent assessment. That's what the law says. I know you don't like it, but that's what the law says. Okay, well... You know, the previous the previous head of Human Rights Watch, I think his name was Robert Bernstein. He had a no, he, was, no, he was the chair. He was never the head of human rights. A chair, whatever. Forgive he me. He was chair of the board, yeah. Uh, um, he had a different take, but you were you replaced him or no? Who was yeah, he? He was my predecessor was Ari Nunnier. Okay, who was who was who, who agreed with what I did? Who was Bernstein? Bernstein was the chairman of the board. 
Okay. The, the previous, the previous chairman of the board or mm-hmm. a, a previous chairman of the board had a slightly different take. You no, know, he, he accused you of uh, many things. He's a lost critical perspective. You know, I mean, and, I'll tell you what he said. He said right. that human rights watch should not report on Israel. Wait, wait, wait. We should only report now, on Israel. Now, now, who's, now, who's, now, on Israel. now Let me explain now, what he said. Let me say what he said. He said, right. because, because Israel has, civil society, so we should let them do it themselves and we shouldn't report on them. We should focus on women's rights and the rest of the Middle East. That was okay. his view. Okay. In my view is hold on, hold on. I didn't even report on everybody, including democracies. Hold on. So that since you said since you caricaturized him, I, I will read what he said. But what I wanted to get to is that he also said that uh that nevertheless there is a difference between wrongs committed in self-defense and those perpetrated intentionally. And uh, I'll read some other stuff. He said, since you, you, you know, I don't think what you put it was accurate at all. I'm reading from his letter. Human rights. Let's, let's look at that. You know, there's. Let, let me just read it. Let me just, let me just read it. Let me just. Defense is let, wrong. Let me just read it and respond. Okay, go ahead. Go read it. Human Rights Watch has lost critical perspective on a conflict in which Israel has been repeatedly attacked by Hamas and Hezbollah, organizations that go after Israel's citizens and use their own people as human shields. These groups are supported by the government of Iran, which has openly declared its intention not just to destroy Israel, but to murder Jews everywhere. This incitement is identified as a violation of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Leaders of Human Rights Watch know that Hamas and Hezbollah chose to wage wars from densely populated areas, deliberately transforming neighborhoods into battlefields. And they know the militancy continues to deprive Palestinians of any chance for peaceful and productive life. And then it goes on, reporting often relies on witnesses whose stories cannot be verified and who may testify for political advantage or because of fear retaliation from their own rulers. Significantly, Colonel Richard Kemp, the former commander of British forces in Afghanistan and an expert on warfare, has said that the Israeli defense forces in Gaza did more to safeguard the rights of civilians in a combat zone than any other army in the history of warfare. And it goes on and on. And similarly, there was a woman, um, Danielle Haas, who a couple of weeks ago. Let me me just respond to Bernstein first because I only to say that that, that this has been echoed. It's kind of bookended by a, a recent resignation from another let me let me just let me address what robert Bernstein says because he's just flat wrong i mean this is a guy who first of all has never conducted investigation in his life he's never done any work in israel um but his basic premise that um if you are on the right side of a war you know you're fighting self-defense or the other side wants to eradicate you or you know the stuff he says there therefore it's okay to commit war crimes he didn't say okay untrue he didn't say okay he never said okay no, he said, basically, we don't, you know, we, we are picking on Israel, poor Israel. They're fighting self-defense. Why are we reporting on them? Because they're committing war crimes. So, so, so you, you, self-defense you, does not justify war crimes. That's a basic rule. It you, doesn't matter the justice of your cause because everybody thinks their cause is just. You cannot commit war crimes. Hamas you, cannot commit war crimes. Israel cannot commit war crimes. You accuse me of car- caricaturization, but really you're doing it over and over. I haven't done that. He didn't say it's okay. He says there's a difference between wrongs committed in self-defense and those perpetrated intentionally. The law of murder. Well, that's wrong. I mean, Hamas says they're they're resisting the occupation. That doesn't give them the right to kill civilians. No, it's fine to say it's it's, it's fine to say it's wrong. It's fine to say it's wrong, but don't say he said it's okay. He didn't say it's okay. He he wanted us not to report on Israel. Okay, that means give them a buy. We're not going to deal with their work. That was like that was so. 
wrong. Okay, so get, it, it, it violates the okay. fundamental principles of the organization. Well, let me not, add, didn't do that. So let me add this in here because we didn't get to discuss it because the interview ended early. Uh, a woman named Danielle Haas, senior editor at Human Rights Watch, resigned. Um, these are some excerpts from her letter of resignation, which is available online. Quote, Following the Hamas massacres in Israel on October 7th, years of institutional creep culminated in organizational responses that shattered professionalism, abandoned principles of accuracy and fairness, and surrendered its duty to stand for the human rights of all. HRW's initial reactions to the Hamas attacks failed to condemn outright murder, torture, and kidnapping of Israeli men, women, and children. They included the context of apartheid and occupation before blood was even dry on bedroom walls. These responses were not, as some have since characterized it internally, a messaging misstep in the tumult after the Hamas attack. It was not the failure of a few to follow robust internal mechanisms of editing and quality control, as others have claimed. Rather, HRW's initial response was the fruition of years of politicization of its, of its Israel-Palestine work that has frequently violated basic editorial standards related to rigor, balance, and collegiality when it comes to Israel. She goes on to say that people at Human Rights Watch self-censor because of, quote, the tone and content of banter before and during meetings in listservs and in message chats. And... After a long bullet point list of specific accusations, she says um, these accusations, quote, amount to a charge and a challenge to Human Rights Watch. Tackle the longstanding issues infecting your Israel work and the hostile internal climate that Hamas attacks brought into sharp relief, but did not birth. All right, let me ask you a question. This will, and then we'll move on to something else. You know the concept of death by a thousand cuts? This is what bothers me. The notion of death by a thousand cuts is that if you were to treat each cut proportionally, you wouldn't do anything about them because they're, they're little cuts. But you, but if you fear death by a thousand cuts, you have to treat every cut seriously because otherwise you'll die. If Mm -hmm. Hamas spreads itself out all around in tunnel, you know, all around civilians, and in your view, each individual thing would be disproportionate because I think without car- making a caricature of you, I think you're saying that basically any civilian deaths in a bombing for a military target is disproportionate. That's, that's not the law. That's not what the law says. But what is the law the- says you have to compare um, the anticipated civilian cost and see is it excessive to the concrete interact. How many how many civilian lives is a is a is, is a just because, but I mean let's look at what Biden is saying today. Oh, sorry, wait, wait. I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to go really, orderly. I will get I'm just trying to go systematic. Yeah, no, 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 I'm answering your question. How many how many how many civilian lives would you say is proportionate to a central command center and a and a leader and a major planning leader? How many civilian lives? There's not a concrete answer to that. These are judgment calls. And Human Rights Watch doesn't condemn if it's a close call. We condemn when it's clearly wrong. What would be a close call? Now, let me just answer your question. How many would be a close call? Biden is trying to address this issue. And he's saying, at this stage, this ongoing bombing is creating wholly disproportionate civilian casualties, which is why he's pushing Israel to proceed in a much more focused way using ground forces. Okay, that's the U.S. government's position. If the U.S. That's government not true. That, that's not- like a complete apologist for the Israeli military, that's got to be the, you know, the least you would do. 
Okay. Well, you tweeted out, um, you tweeted out a Newsweek article of December 16th, a few days ago, and uh, quoting a test of proportionality, the modest number of Hamas fighters killed compared to Palestinian lives suggested that the IDF's intent was indeed to punish the Palestinian people. U.S. military officers said it's hard to come to any other conclusion. This was your tweet. So I went and looked at the article and there's other things in the article, too. The other article also says, contrary to what you're saying now, U.S. military and intelligence officers following the war agree that civilian casualties measured per bomb or per target are exceptionally low. The article quoted a retired military lawyer who has been involved in target review for four different American campaigns saying, quote, to say that Israel threw out the rule book and indiscriminately bombed civilians is absurd. It continues, while Washington was telling the Israelis to do everything that could be done to minimize the loss of civilian life, U.S. intelligence observers say there were few specific disagreements over individual targets. The Biden administration was more concerned about the tone of the campaign. So this seems to be contrary to what you're saying. It seems like in a target, target by target, the Biden administration has signed off on almost all these bombings. But they're not reviewing them target by target. But like, let's look what Biden said. Biden has now twice. This is an article you tweeted out. This is, this is, is an indiscriminate article. bombardment. No, by, by, he said it. indiscriminate bombing. Now, this is different from what we're talking about. We've been talking about disproportionate harm. There are two different rules here. One is that you cannot treat an area just because it has some military targets within it. You can't bomb the whole area. Biden says that that's what they're doing. The second one is even if you're aiming at a military target, you can't fire if the harm to civilians is disproportionate. Now, the, Bill Arkin's article says the U.S. agrees that most of the bombs are proportionate when they're not being indiscriminate but that there clearly are quite a few that are disproportionate, which is why Biden is pressing them to stop. Well, it, Biden may be pressing them stuff. Obviously, we're all grownups here. He could be pressing them stops for, for the political reasons, because it's, we don't know why he's pressing them political reasons that led him to say it's indiscriminate bombing. That's well, a leak. Biden, case. He's basically saying Israel is committing war crimes. That's what indiscriminate bombing is. Okay, for yeah. the president of the United States to say that, that is serious. Well, Biden, as we know, has flubbed with a lot of words. I think you don't flub twice and you but, don't okay. use that language. But, but after, after he said that, they did ask the uh, administration to clarify and the administration's answer was, no, that is not our determination. On, on that particular issue, the president yesterday did uh, talk about indiscriminate bombing. He said, um, this is a different story than what I believe was occurring before an indiscriminate bombing. He's kind of talking about how the U.S. has been able to influence the uh, the way that the Israelis are conducting this um, this this campaign. Does, so does that mean there was an assessment at some point that, that it was indiscriminate? So as always, I will let the, the the White House speak to the president's specific comments. But I think the point that he was he was making is that when you look at the way they have conducted their military operation around Al Shifa, it has been a targeted operation to move slowly into the hospital. They're moving one building at a time. They have not. It's an it's an operation that is yet on, ongoing. My understanding is they have not completed uh, operations against every building in the hospital as of yet. It's something that's ongoing. And he was contrasting that with the airstrikes that Israel has conducted that even when targeted can produce significant collateral damage and loss of civilian life. So indiscriminate is not this building's assessment. It's not an assessment that we've made. And again, what I think the president was referring to was contrasting ground operations with airstrikes, which even when targeted uh, can produce significant civilian casualties. 
White House spokesman John Kirby downplayed President Biden's comment that Israel is using indiscriminate bombing to attack Hamas in Gaza. The president was speaking to his concerns about, um, uh, about making sure we're seeing the results that Israel has claimed is their intent, which is to reduce civilian casualties. Uh, you know, if, if Israel is- He says it twice. He, I mean, this is what they're talking about internally. He, he repeats it publicly and they say, no, no, we're not ready to say that publicly yet. You know, okay. let's get real. He was okay. accurately- So let's pretend for a second that, um, um, I'm, I'm the prime minister of Israel and I have the human rights head in my office with me. I'm about to send out, I'm going I'm to bomb this camp. They say it's going to be around 500 people dead. And you would say, no, sir, it's not proportionate. And I would say to you then, okay, how many, what would be okay? What number would be okay? And you'd say, well, it's a judgment call, sir. And I'd say, well, okay, but I have to make a decision and I don't want you criticizing me after I make it. So give me something to go on. How many civilians? If I were talking to Netanyahu, this is what I would say. Netanyahu, as you may remember, he invoked the biblical injunction of Amalek. Why, why we do? Can we get a straight answer? No women, children, men, or animals alive. Okay? That's not so, true. I mean, was, no, no, let me just say, that's what he said. And so the signal there is basically, don't worry about uh, civilian casualties. You know, it's basically an invitation to war crimes. The defense minister, Gallant, says these are all human animals. No, he okay. didn't say that. No. He said Hamas. He, he specifically no, said no, Hamas. He look at, go I'll, back and look at what he says. He's referring I'll, to the I'll siege. Play it for you. He's referring to the siege. And so, what, what, in other words, he is not referring to Hamas. He's referring to everybody who's affected by the siege, which is the civilian population of, of Gaza. So this was far more than just saying Hamas is human animals. He's saying everybody there. It was in the context of a discussion of the scene. So there were two gallant quotes about this. One was at a formal uh, announcement in front of the press, and one is on a cell phone camera just to the troops. So here they are. We are imposing a complete siege of Gaza. There will be no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything will be closed. We are fighting against human animals, and we are acting accordingly. You saw what we were fighting against. We are fighting against human animals. This is the ISIS of Gaza. This is what we are fighting against. Gaza won't return to what it was before. We will eliminate everything. It doesn't take one day, it will take a week. It will take weeks or even months. We will reach all places. There is no way that our brothers, our children, our parents will be killed and we won't react because we are a state. So we understand that Hamas wanted to change the situation. It'll change back 180 degrees and they'll regret this moment. They will regret it. This is the last thing that a commander should do. Okay, this is inviting his troops to discount Palestinian civilian life. Okay, but can you, so let's change my hypothetical to a different prime minister, one that you don't want to criticize, some prime minister that you think is not a criminal, and he's going to ask you this, the very same question I just asked you. You say 500 is too many, but I do want to bomb this command center, and this is the guy who was responsible for killing our people in an atrocity. How do I measure proportionality if the guy who's in charge of calling it disproportionate 
after being asked five times, won't even give a range of civilians. It sounds well, like- I'm not gonna, you, know, you can keep asking the question, I'm not gonna give a number because the answer is you use the means that are most precise, that are least likely to harm civilians. You don't use a 2000 pound bomb in the middle of a refugee camp. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Well, I don't think you're answering my question. Okay. Right. Uh, so I now, only got about 10 minutes more here, so we're gonna have to like hurry up here. Oh, I thought we had you for an hour. No, 45 minutes, that was what we said. All right, the white flag thing, let's do it. So Israel tragically killed three of its own hostages. Mm -hmm. And there were some tweets, you tweeted, Israel has a history of killing people in Gaza who are waving white flags in an effort to convey their non-combatant status. Human Rights Watch reported in 2009. And then Sari Bashi, program director, who was appointed, I think, just after your resignation, tweeted, the kidnapper of the three Israeli hostages bear responsibility for their deaths. Hostage taking is a war crime. The Israeli military also bears responsibility because of its longstanding failure to enforce the IHL protections for civilians waving white flags. And I think she also cited to that report. So I read the report and there were certain things about it that, uh, that I thought were very unfair and I wanna ask you about them, all right? These are my various reactions and then you can answer everything. Number one, these soldiers are risking their lives to save their own hostages. So you would think that would be evidence that the shootings in the past, previous examples of this, were made in some kind of panic rather than um, you know, a, a callous murder of Palestinians uh, because the, the report had said they were in plain view and posed no apparent threat. Well, these hostages were in plain view and, and posed no apparent threat. So I would get from that that it's, it's not as simple as it sounds. That's number one. The article makes no mention of the fact that Hamas doesn't wear uniforms. Now, that, that's a war crime, I believe, not to wear uniforms. Now, what's interesting to me is no mention of it everywhere and how it might complicate things. However, in a report that Human Rights Watch did about the war in Iraq, they wrote the following. The Iraq military's practice of wearing civilian clothes tended to erode the distinction between combatants and civilians, putting the latter at risk and perfidy perfidy is what this is called, poses particular dangers because it blurs the distinction between enemy soldiers who are a valid target and civilians and other non-combatants who are not. Soldiers fearful of perfidious attacks are more likely to fire upon civilians and surrendering soldiers, however unlawfully. In other words, when it came to Iraq, Human Rights Watch went out of its way to, to point out that yes, but if the enemy doesn't wear uniforms, this can actually lead to surrendering people being shot. But in the Israel report, it doesn't mention that at all. And finally, the report leaves out any mitigating facts as for instance, in 2010, the officers were indicted for shooting those who waved the white flag. Now the report came out before they were indicted but it's been many, many years. There's been no update to the report. There's no footnote. There's no update to say, well, actually they did, uh, uh, they were indicted. Military, Israeli military spokesman was quoted as saying, the decision is based on evidence. The soldier who was serving as a designated marksman deliberately targeted an individual walking with a group of people waving a white flag without being authorized to do so. This is the last thing I'll say. You also mentioned, the, it mentions the, the Goldstone report HRW mentions the Goldstone Report 167 times on its website, as best I could tell. Not once does it mention the fact that Goldstone walked back his own report. Human Rights Watch wrote, 
Israel has refused to cooperate with Goldstone mission because it views the human rights council as biased against Israel. It denied visas for Goldstone's team to visit Israel, where three Israeli civilians died from Palestinian rocket fire in December 2008. Um, Hamas said it would cooperate with the mission and Goldstone team visited Gaza. So this makes it seem like Israel was uncooperative. Is this a question or is this a soliloquy? It's the last thing and then you're going to talk all the rest. But Goldstone walked back his own report, writing, if I had known then what I know now, the Goldstone report would have been a different document. Further investigation indicates that civilians were not intentionally targeted as a matter of policy. Indeed, our main recommendation was for each party to investigate transparently and in good faith the incidents referred to in our report. Israel has done this to a significant degree. Hamas has done nothing. Some have suggested that it was absurd to expect Hamas an organization that has a policy to destroy the state of Israel to investigate what we said were serious war crimes. It was my hope, even if unrealistic. And I'll stop there. Meaning that if I read your report, I would get a completely, completely mistaken impression of how Israel handled these white flag things, how it, what it is to, to deal with white flag things when the enemy doesn't wear uh, uniforms and what Goldstone's opinion was of all this stuff. How could you leave this stuff out, I'm asking you? Okay. Well, first of all, I mean, Goldstone, this is what we're talking about, 2006 or something like that. I don't remember the exact date. So it was a long time ago. Let's the, talk report, the, report, the report you quoted was even earlier than that. Well, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was about to say, say no, I'm sorry. The report, the, the white flag report was 2009, maybe. It's within a few okay. years. In other words, my, my point is that um, there, there actually is a long history, even since that report, where you see, you know, wounded Palestinians in the West Bank who are just executed. You know, so, I mean, these things come up over and over again. But shouldn't you update but the report? Let's focus on what happened. Shouldn't you update? Do I answer the question or are you going to keep talking about it? Shouldn't you update okay, the report I mean, saying I mean, that? Are we going to answer the question or not? Shouldn't okay, you? Let me address you. You went on to this whole soliloquy. Let me answer, okay? You're now, not going to answer. Let's look at what happened here, okay? You had, now, it's worth, Hamas absolutely engages in perfidy. You know, they they clearly, you know, they don't always wear uniforms. They disguise themselves as a civilian population. So, you know, those are war crimes. I, I'm, I'm not a defender of Hamas. It's a horrible organization, horrible militia. Um, the hostages obviously knew that. That's why they took off their shirts to say, look, I don't have no suicide bomb here. You know, that's why they were like waving a flag. They tried to make themselves as completely unthreatening as they could. Um, they were, you know, crying in Hebrew. And nonetheless, they were shot. And there is now, you can say, oh, the Israeli soldiers, you know, they're fearful that they might be attacked there. They are fearful this could be a suicide bomb, whatever. Yes, they're fearful, but there was not a single fact from those three hostages that was threatening. Nothing. And they were shot anyway. And so what does this say? It says that, you know, these soldiers, I mean, either they're like, you know, completely panicked when they should, and then they shouldn't be there. Or it suggests that in Gaza, um, any young man is killed. And any young man is not the same as Hamas. Any young They're man speaking, any young, million young men. Any so young man, you know, this is a tragedy because these were Israelis and we know about this, but we don't know about all the Palestinian men who are being shot. But you and said that's, they were, that's the disturbing thing about this. But you said they were speaking Hebrew. Yes, they were calling so you, so out you, Hebrew. So you think they know. So you think they knowingly shot Israelis? Yes, they did. They shot. Okay, this is what the New York Times reports. The three young hostages, shirtless and holding the makeshift white flag, exited a nearby building, the Israeli military said, citing a preliminary investigation. 
one of the Israeli soldiers, mistaking them for a threat, opened fire, killing two of them and wounding the third, according to the military. The third hostage fled into the building from which a cry in Hebrew for help could be heard. The battalion commander ordered the forces to hold their fire, but the wounded hostage later reemerged, after which he was fatally shot, the military said. Roth gets from this that Israeli soldiers knowingly shot people speaking Hebrew. I get from it that the Israeli soldier couldn't conceive that the person coming out of the building was the person crying for help in Hebrew. So he shot that person thinking that was the terrorist and the hostage was still inside. Can you imagine being judged as a nation by a man influential throughout the world who was ready to draw such horrible conclusions on such scant evidence? So you think they knowingly shot Israelis? Yes, they did. They shot. Why would they? They they shot their own hostages on person. Let me put it this way. They knew that these were... Um, they were speaking Hebrew. Now they, you know, maybe they thought it was a joke, you know, that it was Palestinians who were speaking Hebrew. But there was nothing in there to indicate that this was a hostile force. I don't know. I, I don't know that they. How do we know they were speaking they Hebrew? Thought they were shooting Israelis. How do we they know that they were shooting young men? They didn't know they were Israelis. They didn't know they were hostages. They just thought they were young men speaking Hebrew. And- Excuse me. They were speaking Hebrew. Read the young men speaking Hebrew. Speaking Hebrew. Is, is that something they normally come into? Hamas people speaking Hebrew. I mean, I, I, you know, the only if I'm putting myself, you know, why did they shoot? Maybe they thought that Hamas was, you know, trying to fool them by speaking Hebrew. But the point is, there was, you know, the, the hostages were doing everything they could to signal they were not threatening. Shirts how, do off, how do you know? Flag, how do, yelling in Hebrew. How do we know? That, how, do, how do we know? Well, maybe they weren't. How do we? I don't. I don't question. I just don't know. How do we know they were yelling in Hebrew? There. I mean, the media talked about this. They wrote on the walls in Hebrew. I mean, they, you know, they did everything they could. To indicate that these were that they were hostages, you know, that they're not a threat. Oh, but because I mean, they knew that the soldiers were gonna panic if they saw just men coming out there. So did, they did what they could did and they soldiers, shot. Did soldiers report after they shot them that they heard them speaking Hebrew? I'm trying to understand how they're dead. So how would we know they're speaking Hebrew? I mean, what I've seen is they were there were actually signs on the wall, you know, written, they say with food, you know, leftover food in Hebrew. Yeah, but I'm asking how they speaking Hebrew. They might not have seen the sign speaking Hebrew. They might, what I read is they were calling out in Hebrew. Okay, I, I have to look at hostages. You know, so listen. But I, anyway, I, 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 I felt you would. I know you have to go. But my point, my point is this, and it seems pretty clear to me that when it came to the same kind of situation in Iraq, you were understanding enough to write that this lack of wearing uniforms endangers the lives, specifically because. People won't know when people are surrendering or not. And that's the, the same in Gaza. Same thing. Right, in Gaza. But it's not. But it's not written in the report about Israel. That's it's not the, a report that we've done on the Hamas thing yet. We that we haven't done the report. On the, the killing the, of the, the three. white flag. But, you know, if we do a report on the killing of the three, we would certainly note that. No, but the, the point is that the they were zero threat that they were posing zero threat, and they were shot anyway. What does that say about the de facto rules of engagement governing? It, it doesn't. It doesn't. In my opinion, doesn't say anything other than for so, that they panicked in some way. Um, Why there was nothing threatened, zero, no fact whatsoever. Well, we uh, respectfully, we weren't there. We don't know. No, I mean, there's been. Have you ever, have you ever fought, you read anything that suggests that there was a threat? Ever, what was the threat? I don't. I I really don't know, but I know that 
if it, know. Okay, if, but we just feel that we're being unfair, so we feel. It, no, you're unfair, unfair, you're unfair because you're. Facts. You're, you're, facts. you're and, I mean, I understand you're you're just a commentator, but you got to report based on facts, and the facts we have is that these hostages did everything they could to make themselves unthreatening, and they were killed anyway. If, if you're if it's, based, if it's based on facts, I would call on you to have somebody at Human Rights Watch, who I'm sure you're still in touch with, look at that 2009 report about the white flags and update it with the facts that we know. Update it with the gold, update it with the fact that Goldstone has- We don't, we don't go back to reports, but when we do a next report, and no, I mean, no. I'm not there anymore, but if there's a report- You, have, these, to go, you have to go back these, and update it. If, if there's a report, we were do, the Human Rights Watch does new reports all the time. No, but you have- New developments, you, they will report it in those reports. Sir, they don't go back and edit sir, sir, I'm sorry, that's unacceptable. If you are still tweeting out these reports, you have an absolute obligation, an ethical obligation to up and update. Be accurate. You want to say that perfidy is wrong, I, I say that right now. If you if you have if you have a report out there, if you have a report, what I've been writing about Hamas, I constantly criticize Hamas for using human shields for. I am astonished from, um, from populated areas. I do this I, all the time. I am astonished that you don't see, that if you have a report that you are still tweeting out and it contains inaccurate information. What's inaccurate about that? It was true. It was what, true. What, they did shoot a bunch of people who were waving white flags, and they just did it again. That's the whole point. Anyway, I'm sorry. I've really got to go. I had another appointment coming up. I've gone past the time now. What's inaccurate? What's inaccurate is that you say there was no punishment, but actually, they... well, what do you think about that, Periel? I think that um, first of all, if we're going to start at point A, I said an hour, and I have it in writing. Oh, it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. He wanted, it, he wanted to get out. Right. Further. Well, then say that. And then the other thing is, is you saw me squirming Recording. in my. The other thing is um, about this: these three soldiers who were tragically killed by the IDF. Um, anybody who knows as much as he seems to know would know that um, there had just been a trap where nine soldiers were killed, I believe the day before, where they had put Hebrew speaking um, devices into children's toys. Are you sure about this? We have to check. Pull it up. I'll pull it up after. No, nope, I mean, look it up. Pull, pull. I, don't, I don't have the energy to do it now. We, I will um, pull it up. But in, in which not. And they were lured into a building because they heard Hebrew and they're there. I'm really upset by this interview. First of all. Wait, wait, wait. Let, let me finish because it's what he should have said. Um, and that's why, or at least part of why, I'm in also um, what is known to be a heavily, um, a densely populated area where, where, where complete chaos, right? Um, and so that's probably why, if you wanted to guess, that the IDF would have tragically killed three hostages that it's been fucking looking for and trying to okay, save. Okay, okay, okay. Right? So, so that's the answer. I don't know the answer. Well, I mean, I just gave you something that it, seems like a very plausible possibility, right? Yes. They thought it was a trap because that is what just happened the day before. Nine soldiers were killed. All right. I can't find anything about nine soldiers being killed in that trap. However, there is a story. She's right. IDF uncovers Hamas ambush utilizing children's cries in Hebrew. Military reports Hamas terrorists attempted to draw soldiers into a tunnel shaft in Jabalia using rigged children's toys and school bags. 
I don't know, Perry. Maybe you're right. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna debrief these soldiers, and and I'm sure they, they will have a a story, and people will say that is true or not true, depending on. Well, what I, I don't understand what what is that they. I don't understand what the other possibility is that they did it intentionally, like they killed. Okay, can you stop for a second? Um, he 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 danced around a little bit. Saying they're speaking Hebrew, they shot them. Uh, so I, maybe they thought it was a trick. But uh, but of course, if they thought it was a trick, then that would be already um, a mitigating factor. That would be a tragedy. But if they thought it was a trick, so he he stepped in a little bit there. But I don't know. If, I I don't. Know, did it come through the points that I made that when it came to Iraq, they were they pointed out the fact that not wearing a uniform can lead to people surrendering and being shot. Yes. Did it look as evasive as I felt it was? I mean, will people see that he's not answering that question? He's, he's, he's avoiding every... Well, I mean, he didn't really answer right. any. But is that, does that, do you see that when he... Yes. I mean, I, I see it. I don't... Max? Yeah, I see that. Uh, no, be, don't, no, don't be, don't give me the answer I want to hear. No, I mean, he didn't answer any of it. Yeah, he, I mean, if you wrote that, he talked about Iraq having the same issue. Yeah. Now, what about, um, is, was it unfair of me to ask him for a, a number range? How can you say, if you can say something is disproportionate, doesn't it stand to reason that you'd be able to say what is proportionate? And, well, and, and then he went off on Netanyahu, like just changing the question. Yes. Um, I mean, I think that the question of if this, if you're saying that this is disproportionate, then what is proportionate? And then if the answer to that is it's a judgment call and then it's like, okay, fine, but then can you give me some range? And the answer to that is also no, I'm not going to give you any answer other than that it's a judgment call, and then every time, let's say Israel or whoever makes that judgment call, you're going to say that it's disproportionate, then you're going in circles. Look, I, I, I think the whole thing is very upsetting. There is a... What part, what part is upsetting? The part that... Um, he doesn't answer any questions or the fact that he logged off like in the middle of a sentence because he didn't want to answer any questions. The part that, the part that is upsetting me is the following. There are thousands of people dying, innocent people dying, and it's unbearable. It's horrific. And, and, and yet Israel can't allow Hamas to... Israel cannot allow, uh, allow this conflict to end with Hamas in power for the following reasons. It will be seen as a victory for Hamas and throughout the Arabic world. First of all, the other Arabic nations will be very, very upset by that. Second of all, if Hamas is seen to have been victorious, there will never be a two-state solution because, and this is a very Netanyahu-like argument, the only way there will be a two-state solution is if the Palestinian movement feels that's the best they can get. If they sense that Israel is on the downslope, that there's thousands of precision rockets in the north, 
and they're going to be more rockets in the South, and they've won, and Iran, and the Houthis, and that, and that 10, 15, 20 years from now, there might be a dirty bomb, enriched uranium. Who knows? The sky's the limit of what's possible here. They will not settle for their 22%, as Aaron Mate pointed out. There will never be peace if Hamas retains power here. So Israel has to end Hamas. And the world is failing its moral responsibility because the focus of the world, not exclusively, but to a much greater extent, has to be on the outrage of Hamas using civilians as civilian deaths as a, as a war aim, the bloody arithmetic, as the New York Times put it. Because otherwise, what I said is true. If Hamas is allowed to spread itself out all among civilians, and people like Human Rights Watch will say that any death of civilians through, through rockets or, or through bombs, precision, even precision bombs, is disproportionate, Israel will die a death by a thousand cuts. He, he signed off before I got to ask him, but it's, it's pretty clear his position is Israel should stop. Nothing will satisfy him. Because if Israel goes in with gunfire, civilians need to get killed there, right? It, it, there's no numbers. I mean, I don't know. It sounded like what he was saying is that he's not opposed to the military going into, let's say, Jabalia refugee camp, but let them send soldiers in on the ground instead of dropping bombs well, from so the soldiers, sky. Soldiers in on the ground. Are, are going, oh, civilians are going to get killed on the ground, obviously. I think he's saying that the, less the, civilians. The, I mean, he, I have... Well, fine if, fine if, 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 if he would say it should. there's a number of civilians that is too much, but if he's saying any number of civilians is too much, what difference does it make if it's a bomb or it's, it's soldiers? And how do you get rid of the tunnels? And how do you, get rid, and how do you find the, the commander? I mean, where is his outrage? Well, that, that's a different but I think very important question. I don't think that the answer is, I mean, look, I think that. I mean, let's just say one, there was, there was an article that, um, in this last thing, was, I'll say, you can say what you want. It was an, I'm very upset. Well, I think you should go through all of the points that you wanted to make. There was, a, there was an article in Jerusalem Post yesterday. I don't know if you saw this. <clears throat> a Gaza hospital doctor, director. I saw it. Admits Hamas uses hospitals for military purposes. You can see the interview online. Maybe I'll just cut the interview in here. Now, people will say it's not true, but it looks pretty credible, right? So what is Israel to do? They have an answer for everything. People like Kenneth Roth, they have an answer for everything. And no option for Israel. This man tweets out, I'll cut this in too, he tweets out, uh, the photographs of the Israeli military stripping Palestinian men to their underwear and huddling them together reminds me of the deliberate humiliation used toward the prisoners rounded up by El Salvador's autocratic president. We've all seen these photographs. Now, I'm told that this is necessary because they've been wearing suicide belts or whatever it is. I don't know. Maybe he's right that there's some humiliation there. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't see why taking off your shirt and having everybody kneel down in a, in a wartime um, would be a, a ridiculous tactic. I mean, what else are you supposed to do? However, there's not a single tweet 
about October 7th from this right. guy. Right. That is, that is as bothered by he is at these people on their knees with their shirts off. First of all, I think the the IDF and I mean, I think a few places have addressed why they make them take off their clothes. It's completely standard procedure. You put your gun over your head and you take off your clothes and it's to show that you don't have a suicide bomb on. Look, Periel, don't don't discount the probability that there's some spite and venom and rage in uh in in every decision you can be multi multi-purposes listen no I'm, I'm gonna tell you something i'm not discounting that but i can tell you something else and i talk to israeli soldiers every single day um because we're getting them gloves and shirts and socks and i have not heard any of them and we had somebody on the show and i'm not saying that it doesn't exist and i'm not saying that some people aren't doing horrible things and i don't agree with any of those things and what's happening to the palestinian mothers and children and innocent people honestly fucking keeps me up at night um it really does however that does not mean that these complete completely ignoring the fact that I, I I have not heard one soldier that I've spoken to say anything venomous about the Palestinian no, people. I'll add to that. When I was in Israel in the 80s, I had a friend who was shot by an Israeli soldier. He was, he was, he was a soldier and he was shot by another Israeli in a tragic accident. He wasn't killed. He was very badly wounded. These things do happen. Um, happens in police forces. All these things happen. For him to assume that this was an act of murder. I can tell you something for a fact. There is no one more devastated about the killing of those hostages than the guy who killed them. And if you ask anybody oh, of course. who knows anything... Maybe, maybe the parents of the hostages, but yes, of course. You know what? I'll, I'll, bet, it, I'll bet it's on equal ground. That, that soldier is devastated. Well, you know, there, there was... He will never fucking recover from that. There was a famous shooting of an of a unarmed uh, guy in New York. It wasn't Amadou Diallo. It was the other one. Um, no, it was Amadou Diallo. And uh, I think that was the one in the lobby of the... Apartment. I hope I'm not getting it wrong. But anyway, the cops shot him, thought mm-hmm. he had a gun. And when he got to him and saw that he wasn't carrying a gun, the cop apparently burst out in tears. So these terrible mistakes happen. And, and yes, you're right. It, it can be devastating to the person who makes a mistake. Now, I don't know anything about what it's like to be in war, how that distorts your psychology, how PTSD can strike you from something that happened in the morning and carry through to the evening. But the first point I made to him, I stand by. When it, when you see an Israeli shoot Israeli hostages speaking Hebrew, you probably have to open your mind to other explanations than simply murderous intent. I, I, I'm so upset by this guy.
what what why are you upset that he wouldn't answer any of your questions or that you felt that what 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 part of it's upsetting you keep having these people on and you keep getting surprised that they um all seem to have a very similar kind of demeanor which is that when you ask them real questions they don't actually answer you well first of all it's stunning to me that they seem to be being asked these questions for the first time in their lives. You'd think it was to be the most natural question in the world when you go out, when you spend 20 years, 30 years saying this is disproportionate, disproportionate, that somebody would have said, hey, Ken, what is proportionate? I, I, like, I thought the question I asked was very good, but do you remember any bombing that you thought was proportionate? You'd think I mean, you'd say, it, oh, there was that time they bombed that out. Never. Not one recollection of a single proportionate bombing. But no, I'm also <laughs> the answer of, well, he did answer, and his answer seemed to me to be very, um, you know, fantastical, which is he's like, well, if there's a military base in the middle of a field, <laughs> you can go ahead and bomb that. And unfair, unfortunately, that's not what the case is in Gaza. It's horrible. It's it's a tragedy every single day but don't that's not a real answer right because that's not the situation and he knows that's not the situation he knows that's not the situation of course gaza as they like to tell us is small and dense and he, there's 300 miles of i mean i guess what i'm coming to grips with is that i i have i struggle with what seems to me to be total intellectual dishonesty. I don't want to think that about people. It's not often true about people. This guy has been on top of Human Rights Watch for 30 years. This is the guy that everybody's been quoting when they make their case against Israel. Done a lot of, uh, a lot of influence, a lot of damage. Finkelstein quotes him, everybody quotes him. And then you speak to him and you say, "Holy shit! This is not somebody. This is not a. This is not a judicious soul." I just like to think if I was in that situation, and somebody asked me that question, I would say, "I understand your question. You're right. If I'm going to say it's disproportionate, I should have some idea of what is proportionate. We've tried to develop." Some guidelines. For some metrics. One person is yeah. proportionate. I mean, uh, anything. Uh, uh, or. Or, I mean, I don't see how you can, in the, in the privacy of your own mind, call things disproportionate without questioning yourself, what would I think is proportionate? It's, it's the most natural thing in the world. Or if you want to say, I don't believe any bombing is legal. Any bombing that kills civilians or any bombing that um, is, will predictably kill civilians I believe is a war crime. Fine. Yeah, which is fine, fine too. Fine, say that. And then apply it to every nation on earth. Because, uh, but when somebody, and, and he accused me of caricaturing, I, I don't caricature anybody. And also when you read the the Bernstein thing and he then started like being like, he well, that guy fine. doesn't go and know anything. And and he, said, he, said, he said it's fine. He didn't say it's fine. No, he didn't say it's fine. He said it's just not the same thing. Right. And it isn't the same thing because when you're forced to react, you are, th you are thrust into a situation that you don't want to be in. 
when you find yourself a soldier being shot at and you make mistakes, I mean, I guess he would say that not, you know, he, he jumps around. What's a mistake? What's not a mistake? But when you're, when you're thrust into a situation where all of a sudden your life is in danger, not because you wanted to be in that situation, but because you're defending yourself. That is a different moral situation than someone who intentionally comes over the way and kills 1,200 people in atrocities. Now, it's true. This is a complex question. It's true that that's, if you then simply execute somebody in cold blood, it is the same thing. It is the same thing. You, it doesn't matter why you're there. You cannot find yourself in no danger and kill children. That's that's a hundred a hundred percent. But can we call a spade a spade here, please? And just say that there is a double standard when it comes to Israel for for somebody who's so concerned about um, members of a Nazi fucking death cult being in their underwear. I didn't hear a word about the elderly hostages that were forced to. Um, Don't say it's a Nazi death cult, Carol. Because it's, it was not Hamas all. Hamas is not a Nazi death cult. Not Nazi. I mean, at least, at least hey, I'll I'll call it that. No, no, no. But the civilians were not all Hamas. I'm not talking uh, the, the, about the civilians. No, sorry, let me rephrase that. The people with their shirts off were not all Hamas. Many of them were let go. That they were civilians. That's not what I'm talking about. Just I'm, be careful with your words. Okay. okay. I, I wish that everybody else was as careful with their words as... Maybe Roth is right. There's no excuse. Okay? <laughs> your war crime is the same as theirs. Um, did the three elderly hostages, the men who they forced them to change their appearance to conform with um, the rules of Islam, did you see that? Yoram Metzger and Chaim Perry and one other older man who's about 80 years old. Like, why is there no outrage for any of these hostages? Like, wh why is there no outrage for anything that... Uh so, um, anyway, it's, it's heartbreaking to me because of what Israel appears to be up against. This is... This is a very powerful man sitting on top of the humans of Human Rights Watch. And listen to what he's saying. You don't have to update your reports with correct information. We don't we don't update reports. But you can still tweet them out. Right. It's that fucking outrageous. It's outrageous. It is fucking outrageous. You have a much higher expectation of these people than I do. I'm never surprised by any of this. You, you seem to be giving them like the benefit of the doubt somehow. And you think that um, their ethics are, I mean, are, are somehow. Like, like how, how many, how many times are we going to go through this until you're like, oh. Yeah, maybe you're right. Okay. Uh, oh, that's well, a good place to end. Yeah. Say that again. I can't say it twice. <laughs> I'm like the Fonz. I'm sorry. You know, my Fonz, he couldn't say I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I, I had, I was just getting to my best points, by the well, way. Well, <laughs> I don't know why you don't make them. No, it's enough. It's enough. Um, make one of them. No, I, I'm really, I'm drained by this. Um, I don't know. Well, Max, you have any final comments on this? This is, um, this is more than any interview I've ever done. 
this has really gotten to me because Finkelstein is an advocate for the Palestinians. We get that. This guy is supposed to be in charge of human's right, Human Rights Watch. He's supposed to call it down the middle. And he couldn't even put up any argument, I think, that would convince anybody that he's actually calling it down the middle. Max, what do you think? I mean, I think he kind of came in pretty hostile, like, just from the start, it seemed like. It just his energy was was straight. Like, I've never seen it. You know, things get heated in the middle of an interview, but it seemed to like he started from there. Maybe he didn't like my question about his 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 feelings towards being Jewish in Israel. Why? What's wrong with that? I said, I, is it, that is that doesn't it's I, I thought six times about whether to ask it or not, because that's why I didn't ask him about the, the church, because. It's a fair question. It's a completely fair question. But I it's don't the think- kind of question that somebody couldn't pretextually use to become a little indignant about because it's, it's, it is a cousin of an ad hominem attack, meaning that he should be able, I should be willing to simply judge what he says, what his arguments are and what he says. I shouldn't need to know whether he believes in Islam, Judaism, or Christianity. That's not, I disagree. We're well, not We're not in a court of law here. No, no, You've not in a court of law. This, it, you, it, you asked this question to Chaya Rachik when we had her on about, you, you've asked, I mean, it's a reasonable question to understand where somebody's coming from just as curi- curiosity. Well, well, like I said, if it, if, if it was a Palestinian who, you know, uh, became Jewish, or, and then he was bashing the Palestinians... Yeah, it's a natural question. The, the reason is the reason I'm not making an ad hominem attack because I would never use that to uh, attack any of his logic. I attack his logic based on his logic. But then, if if his logic fails miserably as it did, then it becomes fair in some way. Say, well, what's going what what's going on here? These guys went to Harvard and Yale. It's not stupid. He's making points that aren't really adding up. So it, what's the emotional? Sure, there's here? a psychology behind yeah, it, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, that's not. And by the way, I, 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 I felt that he was going to um, sign off the interview early. I felt that today as I was preparing for the interview. And that's why I chose to ask the question at the top, because I felt he wouldn't be there mm-hmm. at the end to ask him. I knew in my heart that this that these these points were so devastating that he would that he would find a way to get out that he would have to sign off because it, it, like you know I I committed a human rights violation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good night everybody. Good night. <laughs> Oh, my God.